When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Blog Talk Radio. So you want your charity to succeed. It's no secret that combining online and offline techniques is the key to modern-day fundraising success. And practical advice is what you need. The Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart is the perfect place to learn from experts around the world who, along with our host, provide advice you can use. Ted Hart is without a doubt one of the foremost nonprofit thought leaders. Also a successful author, his books cover a broad range of topics from major gift fundraising to use of social media and how to succeed online. Ted lectures around the world, but now he's here for you. From the latest in charity news, technology, fundraising, and social networking, Ted and his guests help you maneuver through this economic downturn in the charitable sector to greater levels of efficiency and fundraising success. Remember, this is a live call-in show. Become part of the show by adding your voice. Call now at 347-324-3080. After the show, you can find all our podcasts at tedhart.com. Just click on radio links. Don't forget to dial 347-324-3080. Now, welcome the host of the Nonprofit Coach, Ted Hart. And good afternoon. Welcome here to the Nonprofit Coach. This is Tuesday, February 7th, 2012. Uh, And as always here on the Nonprofit Coach, we start with page one news. Uh, As the announcer said, this is a live call-in show. When we get to page two with our page two expert, you can call in. You also can join us in the chat room. I see a few folks over in the chat room. Hi, folks. Uh, You can ask questions there, or you can email me at tedhart at tedhart.com. You can follow along with all of today's radio links and all the very best links in the nonprofit sector at tedhart.com. Click on radio links. For those of you who are familiar with the show, we always start with page one news. We have the last uh, two weeks off here on the show. I don't know if you uh, missed me, but I certainly missed you folks. Uh, So that means that we have an awful lot here on page one. First up on page one news comes to us from Content Marketing Institute. What they're sharing with you today is seven ways to bring your community into the content creation process. This is all about helping your community keep your website and your social media evergreen. Uh, Let their expertise take center stage as one of the recommendations. Activate your community in real time that this is not all about just things that are uh, about your organization, but how does your community interact with you. And I've said, as I've said over and over and over again, leverage the power of hashtags. Hashtags and Twitter is what it's all about. Twitter is the most important online service for what's happening right now, things happening for your charity right now. You need Twitter and you need hashtags. Read all about it in the radio links today coming to us from Content Marketing Institute. Next up here on uh, the Nonprofit Coach comes to us from the fine folks over at Convio uh, who were just uh, purchased by Blackbaud. They have announced uh, their fourth annual Most Generous Online Cities. Uh, And uh, in the uh, presentation, uh, you can not only read the article, but also they have posted over on SlideShare the slides from their presentation. Uh, The top several cities, I'll just read them uh, to you. Um, The most generous uh, city um, in the uh, United States is Seattle, Washington, for online giving. Then Alexandria, Virginia, Washington, D.C., Arlington, Virginia, look at that, all of the uh, areas right around uh, Washington, D.C., and then we jump to Cambridge, Massachusetts, which is interesting for uh, my next guest here on uh, page one, the fifth most generous online uh, city, Uh, uh, Ann Arbor, Michigan, Berkeley, California, 
San Francisco, California, uh, Bellevue, Washington, right in the Seattle area, so they've got uh, one and nine, and then St. Louis, Missouri uh, rounds out the top ten for online giving cities in the United States. Read all about it over in the radio links at tedhart.com. Now, it's my pleasure uh, to bring a good friend of this show uh, on again uh, today. Uh, John Carson is the chairman and CEO of Bidding for Good. Uh, John is a serial entrepreneur with over 20 years in building and scaling for-profit enterprises that serve a broader social purpose. Uh, He has funded and endowed social entrepreneur lectures at both Yale and Babson College. Uh, Other than brief uh, stints at Boeing uh, and McKinsey & Company, uh, John has always worked on new ventures. Uh, John is always on the cutting edge. He knows technology. Uh, With Bidding for Good, he has been in the forefront of helping provide technology uh, to charities. Uh, Bidding for Good is a sponsor of today's show, so we will have a sponsor message in a little bit, but I wanted to ask John to please come on the show uh, today because I was keenly interested uh, in this latest innovation uh, from John Carson and the fine folks at Bidding for Good. Uh, John, what are smart auctions uh, on mobile devices? And by the way, welcome here to the Nonprofit Coach. Ted, it's great to be back. Well, Good to have you here. My goodness, you are always on the cutting edge. No moss uh, grows here. Uh, You've got a new innovation, uh, and I was wondering if you'd tell us all about um, what's happening over in mobile technology for nonprofits. Well, this all starts with an observation that we had and some market research we did last summer where we discovered that around 97% of the people who were attending fundraising events are coming to the event with a mobile phone in their pocket, and the vast majority of them are smartphones. And as we stepped back from that, our sort of thought was that a mobile phone could be sort of viewed as a very interesting bidding device in the room with all sorts of advantages over a clipboard Uh, because a mobile phone can tell you when you've been outbid, and uh, you can bid on multiple items that are in different parts of the room, and uh, you can bid without any kind of constraints to, you know, kind of time or geography. So as we looked at that and we sort of started to experiment with running, uh, you know, in-room mobile-enabled auctions, what's really become clear to us is that something pretty profound has happened in the fundraising event market, which is that for the first time ever, um, there are no constraints. There is really an abundance of choice. And in the old world, fundraisers were constrained. If they wanted to have a silent auction, they sort of had to have it in a room at a given time on a Saturday night, and uh, that imposed a lot of friction and constraints that really lowered the outcome because the bidding could only be at the Holiday Inn on Saturday night at 7 o'clock. It was limited to the people in the room. They had to fight the crowd. Uh, They didn't know if they had been outbid. There was sort of an awkward ending. And in many respects, if you think of Sotheby's, as sort of the sort of gold standard for how to run a good auction, the traditional silent auction violated so many of the different practices that Sotheby's um, does that it really sort of asked the question of how could this be better? And so it's our kind of view that it's not as if silent auctions haven't worked. Um, it's just the way the horse and buggy um, kind of worked. But something's come along that's a bit better. And so now that you have mobile technology, you can put these auctions online and you can stage your auction so that items are being bid on before your event, during your event, after your event, and all of the above. And in fact, what it means is that uh, organizations can actually have less items closing in the room the night of your event in where you're competing with the party and the social aspects, and they can have more uh, items closing at different times, all of which means that they raise more money and they have less work. And you've really become a, an expert in, in, uh, in that area. So what's, what's, uh, what's really new about uh, smart auctions? Is, is that the, the timing and the scaling? 
Um, the big new thing is that I think the final piece has come in, fallen into place, which is that 98% of the gala attendee population is now gone out and purchased a mobile phone. And so they are now coming into the room with these phones, which are effectively mini computers and uh, really uh, can be uh, built to or can be uh, purposed so that they are remote bidding devices. And what that means is that we've, we've had in-room auctions. We've certainly had silent auctions, which is what Bidding for Good's done for many years. But we at Bidding for Good, we've never been able to integrate with the room. An online auction really can't integrate with a clipboard. But an online auction can integrate and talk to a mobile phone. And so when we have run our in-room mobile-enabled auctions, which have almost always had an online auction before, many have had it afterwards, we've seen over 30% of the bids have come from people outside of the room, in many cases from around the country. And so by breaking down these barriers, you're getting more demand, you're getting less friction, more competition, and people are raising more money. And we have not had a client yet who has run an event that has been online, online in the room, uh, in the room, online after the event, uh, any of these different combinations. We haven't had anybody who has not raised more money. That's a, that's incredible, and, and over uh, the period of time that uh, that you you have uh, since you started bidding for good, how much have you raised? We have raised almost 140 million dollars for various nonprofits. That is absolutely absolutely incredible. Uh, again, John Carson, thank you for joining us here on uh, the Nonprofit Coach. I'm so impressed with not only the technology but the thoughtfulness that you give to the strategy and the use of technology. Um, the innovation keeps coming from bidding for good, and thank you again uh, for bringing it to all of our listeners here on the Nonprofit Coach. Thanks a lot, Ted. Next up here on uh, Page One News, and again, you can follow along uh, here on Page One uh, News at tedhart.com. Click on radio links. Um, as you are following along to uh, uh, the radio links, you will find a notation from Fundraising Success Magazine where they are uh, helping us understand um, a proposal on the Buffett Rule tax bill that's coming before the U.S. Senate. Uh, one of the good news uh, in that uh, proposal for our sector is that it is one of the ways um, that uh, will continue to preserve the charitable deduction that um, while each of the richest Americans would pay a minimum share of income tax if this legislation were adopted, uh, it would allow them to continue claiming a deduction for charitable giving, and that is good news. Whether or not the bill will pass is another question, but it's good news that charitable giving continues to be on the table for uh, protection as we work through some of the financial difficulties facing the government in the United States. Also coming to us from Fundraising Success Magazine uh, is telling us information about Facebook's new timeline apps and how social fundraising is starting to use the new application at Facebook known as Timeline. Five reasons why Facebook timeline apps will make a difference in the nonprofit sector. Um, you can read all about this over in the radio links today, and we thank the folks from Fundraising Success Magazine for bringing that to our attention. Uh, next up here and wrapping up uh, here on page one uh, comes to us from the Harvard Business Review. Uh, over on the Harvard Business Review, now we talk a lot about networking. We talk a lot about social networking, um, but it occurred to me, and this is great that uh, uh, HBR has sent this over to us, uh, is that one of the things that some people um, have to face is that if you're an introvert in a social world, how do you make that work? Well, here's an article all about an introvert's guide to networking. Uh, that comes to us again from the Harvard Business Review, and a link is provided over uh, in page one today at tedhart.com. You can click on radio links. Uh, that wraps up page one news today. That means it's time for page two. It is now 
not always easy to find time on the schedule of very, very busy people. Uh, Dr. Susan Raymond is one of those people, and I'm thrilled that we have uh, been able to find time on her very busy schedule. Uh, she is Executive Vice President of Research, Evaluation, and Strategic Planning for Changing Our World. Susan leads research on all aspects of philanthropy uh, and economic and demographic change, as well as strategic alignment for new social finance investment strategies for nonprofits and social enterprises. Her most recent book on philanthropy, A Nonprofit Finance for Hard Times, Leadership Strategies When Economies Falter, was published in 2009 by John Wiley and Sons. She's also author of Mapping the New World of American Philanthropy, Causes and Consequences of Transfer of Wealth, which is also published by John Wiley and Sons in 2007. Uh, and you definitely don't want to miss the opportunity uh, to read The Future of Philanthropy, uh, Economics, Ethics, and Management, uh, also from John Wiley and Sons. She's published extensively in the areas of philanthropy, economics, health care, and corporate response in such journals as the Journal of Financial Planning, Foreign Affairs, Development, Economic Reform Today, uh, the Annals of New York uh, Academy of Sciences, and it goes on and on. Susan earned her BA uh, Phi Beta Kappa uh, from McAllister uh, College and her MA and doctorate from Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies. My goodness, what a resume and what a pleasure to welcome you here today, Dr. Susan Raymond. Good morning, Ted. It's great to be here. I'm just about to sign a contract for a new book. Oh, that's wonderful. Uh, can you share uh, with that, us uh, and our uh, listeners today what that book will be about? It's going to be called Nonprofit Strategies for Rapid Economic Change. It struck me that's when... That's terrific. And, and when's uh, the uh, uh, proposed release date? Uh, hopefully it'll be the first part of 2013, probably January. Oh, lots and lots of work ahead uh, from you, yes. <laughs> So yeah, that could up. be a big mistake. <laughs> yeah, you, you know how that goes. I'm uh, I'm also just uh, working on uh, a proposal with uh, Wiley uh, for my seventh book with them, and uh, same time frame. We'll see how uh, how that uh, comes together. But but more about you coming coming uh, all the way back to um, the so important work that you do at Changing Our World and the white papers that you have uh, produced and the special reports. There is a link over in the radio links today. Uh, for all of our listeners uh, to be able to go directly to the page on uh, changingourworld.com where your white papers are are posted. But let's let's wind back a little bit um, and tell us a little bit more about um, what draws you to research and why you've dedicated so much of your energy and time to this particular pursuit in the philanthropic sector. Well, you know, Ted, it's, it's really a, an interesting thing. I mean, uh, I've only been in this particular sector for, you know, a dozen years or so, but I, I really came into it from work that I was doing in Eastern Europe um, sort of as the countries fell and then in the Soviet Union and, and uh, developing some of the first private philanthropies out in that region and the post-Soviet uh, sort of time frame. And became very interested in the role of philanthropy uh, in civil society and that, in fact, my view is that philanthropy is not actually about the money, or at least it's not only about the money. Philanthropy is really about private leadership stepping forward onto civil society to contribute to problem solving for entire communities. And, you know, we use money as, as a measure of that just because it's a convenient thing to do and because you do have to pay the bill to turn the lights on. But, in fact, what it stands behind all of this talk about the money is something that people don't talk very much about, and that is the critical element of leadership and private leadership in social problem solving. And so that's really what drew me to this work, and that's why a lot of the writing I do is really not just about the nonprofit sector. It's about it starts out in the rest of the world, which is the economy, the society, the demographics, the changing values, opinions, economic structure, community structure, and then works back into implications for the nonprofit sector of changes in that operating environment. So that's sort of how I got here. 
Well, I, I, and that's so interesting, and I really appreciate you sharing that with us because here on this show we've discussed several times. You know, my view is, and it sounds like it matches very nicely with uh, with your view, is that charities do not exist for charity's sake. They are the conduits through which people who want to make things happen, who want to change their communities, are able to affect that change. That that in fact. Someone who wants to feed children or or build a new school uh, may quit their job and go out and do all that if they could, but they can't. So they give money to a charity. They support a charity who helps those endeavors and makes sure that those endeavors that the donor feels are important are going to happen. So that's the reason why they really exist, not for their own sake. And so often the, the leadership, boards of directors, and certainly staff become so focused on budgets and the need for money and I'm not saying those things are not important, that they lose sight of the fact that there's a mission that drives that organization, and the mission is not the budget. Uh, you know, I couldn't agree more, and, and I would just add that neither is the mission an anchor. And I think what, what the mistake, and, and if there is, a, if there is a, a silver lining to the economic cloud that we've been through, I think it is that um, it is um, forcing, by virtue of competition and resources, forcing institutions to begin to understand that their mission is actually a sale, not an anchor. And that they absolutely, have absolutely. And and that in doing that there is a need and a requirement that they constantly test that mission to to determine is it still relevant, are they still providing the service that they have been sworn to provide to the community, as opposed to, as you said, being anchored to something that is etched in stone, and that's not what a, a, a mission or a mission statement is meant to be. Right. I mean, that's why when we do any kind of planning here, strategic planning, business planning for our clients, we always start with the external environment what is happening in the community, what is happening in the economy, what is happening in leadership, what's happening in demographics. And then we always work back into the organization from that. And we say, do the programs match up to what's happening? And it's not just what happened, what is happening now. You know, it's, it's Wayne Gretzky's uh, learning to be a great hockey player by skating to where the puck is going to be. And so the question is not what is, what is the environment now, the question is, what is the environment 10 years from now? What is the trend? Because mm-hmm. it takes time to change. And, and if you're always using today as your metric, then you will always be five to six years behind what's happening in your environment. So we build predictive models. We build projections models so that institutions can plan for where the puck is going to be. That that is such a, a great uh, analogy, and is probably one of the hardest things for volunteer uh, leaders to really grasp, because you know they do feel this need for constant fundraising, and and I'm not saying that budgets are are not important, but but I have found that in organizations that I've worked with is that they actually flourish when they open the doors and they open the windows, and they're not so tied to um, you know, just meeting a budget or being tied to a strategic plan that is, you know, again, etched in stone, but that they are allowing themselves to be very connected to their community. Uh, and how much does entrepreneurship uh, play into successful charities? Oh, it's, it's critical. You know, I mean, it's, and it's very, you're right, it's very hard for institutions to do this. It's particularly hard for small institutions to do this. But, you know, as I'm fond of saying that changing our world is part of the Omnicom group, which is the largest communications company in the world. And I always say, there is somebody at Omnicom who can tell you today with certainty that two years from now you will buy pink socks. And they're in the process of getting ready to sell them to you. Because that's the way a commercial entity thinks. And it's some of that thinking that has to get into the nonprofit sector. What will it look like in the future? How are people's expectations and demands changing? What will people want? And begin always, always to position in terms of that change. And that means in most organizations, large or small, I think the reason organizations fail to do that is is twofold. Number one, it is that entrepreneurial culture that's missing, but it's also because, Ted, nobody's ever in charge of it. And if nobody's in charge of it, then it's not likely to get done. 
it's always kind of the last thing that you think about as opposed to the first thing that you think about. So it's both a change in culture, but also it's a change in expectations and accountability within institutions. And, and, and getting that accountability right uh, is so important. Susan, we're going to take a, a little bit of a, a station break here. When we come back, I want to explore with you a little bit more of this notion of entrepreneurship in the nonprofit sector. Um, and as you said, you know, at Omnicom and other for-profit companies, um, you know, they're already thinking a couple of years down the road. They know more about you know the future uh, than most nonprofits do. But I also want to explore for our listeners today what is uniquely nonprofit, and and where where is that line where nonprofits do not become for profits? There is a unique role for nonprofits, and what is different? And I'd like to explore that with you. We'll be right back after the break. Once again, we're so pleased to have Bell Strike as our sponsor for the show today. How many of you nonprofits have run into this situation? You need a great-looking, easily updatable website that accepts online donations. Here's the catch. You don't have the time, you don't have the know-how, you don't have the budget uh, to be able to hire a professional uh, or even to have a volunteer that can help uh, figure all that out. Well, that, there's a new service that can help you out, and it is bellstrike.com. Bellstrike lets nonprofits set up attractive, donor-enabled websites in about one or two minutes. Um, seriously, if you never felt like you had any technical expertise, you're going to look like a million bucks with bellstrike.com. Uh, you have online fundraising, a blog, auto receipts, uh, and now just by signing up, you can also enter into their $5,000 grant contest. And there's a lot more on their website as well. So if you need a website specifically designed for nonprofits, not cookie cutter trying to force yourself into a for-profit site, uh, check out Bellstrike. That's B-E-L-L-S-T-R-I-K-E.com. Check out Bellstrike.com. And, again, we're so pleased to have them as a sponsor of the Nonprofit Coach. Let's head right back over to Dr. Susan Raymond, our page two expert. Don't forget, you can call in to 347-324-3080, and you can also join us over in the chat room. Okay, we're just waiting for uh, the little announcement here, Susan. Remember, here our podcasts and archives are always available 24 hours a day at tedhart.com. Click on radio links. If you're listening live today, the phone lines are open. Call in and ask a question by dialing 347-324-3080. Now, back to the Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart. A little bit of a delay there with our announcer, but uh, we managed to uh, get the announcement in uh, just the same. Um, so, Susan, where is that water's edge for uh, a nonprofit to be nonprofit and not just to be corporate? You know, it's 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 very interesting. I, this is such an exciting time in this sector. I, I really believe, Ted, that five, six, seven, eight years from now, this is this whole sector is going to be completely different. The 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 line between nonprofit and for profit is blurring. There are nonprofits that have for profit entities associated with them. There are for-profits that have non-profit associated entities. There are social bonds. There is impact investing. There is There are these new tools that really smart people are thinking about bringing into this sector. There's a whole new generation, and this is really critical. There's a whole new generation of people who of wealth who are coming into the social problem-solving area and they are saying, I don't actually care about organizational structure. I care about fixing it. And they are moving their money in ways that other people have never thought about. It's, it's very exciting. But I think the the one thing that that is the difference between a nonprofit who's you know in any type of a social finance or social entrepreneurship space and a commercial entity really is profit maximization. That's the difference, that the nonprofit entity is there to 
optimize profits relative to mission, but not necessarily to maximize profits. The private institution is there to maximize profits for shareholders. And, and that, that is a very sharp edge that, um, that is the distinguishing point. But everything, all of the area up until that sharp edge on both sides is very, very um, fluid right now. And I think it's going to become more fluid in the future. The question really is, can some of this innovation, this, this really exciting innovation, can innovation in these exciting new ways of thinking, can they backlink into the, the base, the existing corpus of 1.4 million nonprofits? And, and can nonprofits that are, have historical roots and historical missions and historical traditions, can they become flexible, can they become fluid to take advantage of this new entrepreneurship on the societal commons or not? And if the answer is not, then I think we will have, um, we will have two, in a way, two tiers on the societal commons. We will have very innovative, very entrepreneurial, very fluid, very flexible, nimble organizations, and then we will have a bunch of organizations that are going to have a very hard time adapting to the future. Well, and I think that hard time is is coming. I'm so glad that you put that on on the table because I I, I really think that there is a, a sort of a, a mental break here that that rolling forward nonprofits really have to get their 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 arms around here because as I point out to so many people, the difference between for profit and nonprofit is simply where the profit goes. Is that in the for-profit world it goes to shareholders? In the nonprofit world, there are no shareholders. It's the community good, so the profits go back into the the charity. But so many nonprofits get caught up in sort of what I call the can't. That well, we're a nonprofit, so we can't. And so, how scary is this world that you're excited about for the average charity? You know, I, I think it. I think it is scary. I think that it's. Um, I think it's scary to boards. I think it's scary to presidents and executive directors, and I think it's scary to program technical people who, you know, who who have come out of a kind of an education and a way of thinking that um, that is is not oriented toward flexibility and change. And um, I think part of what has to happen is that the educational programs that are coming forward at the university level have to start being much more integrated into entrepreneurial um, schools within these universities as opposed to staying sort of within nonprofit management. This whole idea that you're going to have to pick the very best ideas and the very best initiatives from wherever they are, wherever they are housed, whoever their leaders are, and bring them on to the societal commons if you're actually going to solve problems, um, I think is going to be the driver of the future. And now is the time, Ted, that if, if we fail to do it now, if we fail to make this adaptation now, we will have missed, I believe, the opportunity of a lifetime. There is a new generation of wealth coming forward, a new generation of wealth that is interested in societal problem solving and in social finance, that is willing to create, to craft, to innovate tools on the financial commons that will empower innovation. But if the nonprofit sector doesn't come forward with that innovation, if there are not places for the, that financial innovation to dock, if there are no docking bays in the nonprofit sector, then that really creative talent will go develop something else. They'll go develop a better mousetrap. They'll go develop a better handheld mobile set. They'll do something else, you know. And we will have missed the opportunity to to get this energy of these new ideas and financial innovation hooked up to social problem solving through nonprofits. And that will be a, the, probably the greatest tragedy um, of, of our generation. Well, and, and Susan, for as you know, you and I have both been in this uh, in this sector for uh, for a long time. Uh, me, probably longer than I than I want to uh, to admit. Uh, but um, we, you know, we have heard 
this mantra in the nonprofit sector of needing to reinvent the nonprofit for years, more than more than a decade uh, or more. And I and I think it's only been talk. There really hasn't been uh, all that much action in actually reinventing. But aren't we now seeing the pressure coming from outside? And you mentioned these new social entrepreneurs that this whole notion of reinventing and a much more entrepreneurial approach to nonprofit sectors because let's face it nonprofits overall um, have had the reputation and in a lot of ways people view it as as a strength that they're downright boring <laughs> that, that there isn't anything exciting and new um, they just provide good service and there's nothing wrong with that but the the whole notion of providing service itself is changing now uh, no I think that that's absolutely right you know I was I was giving a speech a week ago and I said look um, here's what has fundamentally changed in the, phil- the mindset of the philanthropist after the, you know, the most recent economic turmoil. The competition for resources has become intense, um, and the philanthropist is no longer interested in what you need. He or she is interested in what you're going to do. So the competition is not going to be on the basis of needs, because everybody needs something. It is going to be on the basis of who's got the best idea and evidence that you can do something about it. So as the philanthropist changes his or her lens to focus on do, not need, hopefully that will incentivize nonprofits to become more creative and innovative about what it is they do and how it is they do it, and and that will begin to sort, if you will, those who are willing to change from those who won't. Um, well, and, and, but the and jury's the, out. The jury's out, Ted. The jury's out. Yeah. Well, I think the jury is out, but I think you're absolutely right that the the jury's coming in on this, <laughs> in in that uh, for for charities who and a lot of big brands have been built on loyalty, not necessarily outcomes, but good branding and, and loyalty and trust. That outcomes is becoming much more important. It's moving up the scale of what keeps a donor in place. It's not just uh, trust and, and loyalty to the brand, uh, but it's outcomes. Absolutely. You know, I, I always say it. You you will always get twenty five dollars from your great aunt Tilly because she remembers what a nice young boy you were. But increasingly, the the major donor, the major philanthropist, as as they've said to me, we want to fix it. And whoever can fix the problem, we will move our money to. We're not loyal to an institution. We're loyal to fixing a problem. So if you can't demonstrate material impact, material relationship to the problem, a material do statement, then they'll move on to somebody else. And that's very difficult. These are very difficult things in this sector because we're not talking about cement making. You know, a cement company knows how much sand, how much water, how much gravel per cubic foot of cement. We're talking about, in many cases, problems whose origins we don't even understand. What do you do about hate? That becomes a a real big challenge uh, for charities who are sort of caught in the middle of being more measurable, being more outcomes-oriented, as if they were a widget company, um, when they're dealing with uh, topics and issues facing our community, which by the very nature is, quite honestly, if you could make money and big money, someone would, and it'd be a for-profit. Uh, the very nature of being nonprofit makes it not quite measurable as a widget company. That's absolutely true, and 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 I think most philanthropists are realistic enough to know that they know that problems are complex, or they wouldn't be interested in them. Um, they know that things take time, but I think what what I see and what we see here at Changing Our World is philanthropists want. <clears throat> Philanthropists want to know what you, the nonprofit, are going to do to assess. And I, and I always use the word assess, not evaluate, because evaluation uh, assumes that we can do cause and effect and we can do you know, 
we, we can do bell curves and we can do all these things. We can't necessarily with the data, but the philanthropist wants to know, what are you going to do to assess how well you're doing? And in 98% of the cases, the philanthropist will agree to whatever it is you say you're going to do. But if you don't say anything, the philanthropist will tell you what he expects and you will not be happy. Right. Well, and, and, and Susan, the, the, the bottom line for, for a lot of uh, uh, charities is if they are completely honest with themselves, they don't even measure what they do as opposed to thinking about the future. I know. I think that's true, and most of them don't have any. Most of them don't have indicators. They haven't figured out what their indicators are. They don't have systems for tracking the indicators, and they don't have people who are interested in the systems to track the indicators. One of the the things that I do when I work with clients is I I do the system that I call uh, discovery, where I I'm basically testing sort of the walk around knowledge, not the I can pick up a report knowledge, but the walking around knowledge of how the charity has actually uh, developed itself, what its measurements are, and how it's doing. Um, and I can't tell you how many charities I've worked with that do not even have a walk around knowledge of what their budget size is, uh, and leave out the uh, the fact that they don't even even know what's in the budget. You know, I, I think it's true. I think that you know that that the finance function has always has always been very separate from the programmatic function in most um, large nonprofits, and that's why, quite frankly, um, Ted, you see so many nonprofits that have strategic plans, but they don't have business plans. Right. They think they they think when they're done exactly. with their strategic plan, they're done. And when they're done with their strategic plan, in fact, they've only started. You have to have a business plan. And well, the strategic plan is something that they do, put in the binder, and then go on with their day-to-day activities. Right. Because no, it, no. it's something that was completed. Susan, we're going to take a, a, a quick break here. When we come back, I'd like you to share with our listeners today something very impressive, uh, but not at all surprising, adding to your uh, incredible uh, vitae um, is your appointment at the Peace and Prosperity Group CRDF Global. Uh, we'll be right back from the break. I want to thank our additional sponsor uh, today, uh, the fine folks over at Bidding for Good. It's a charitable e-commerce company that connects fundraisers, shoppers, and businesses. Online auctions powered by Bidding for Good have generated over $135 million for nonprofit organizations and schools. Now, mobile devices are the latest disruptive technology to impact event fundraising. Bidding for Good's mobile capabilities enable fundraising auctions to run smart auctions where items can close before, during, and after events, giving fundraisers complete choice in how to structure their auction catalog. Now, smart bidding allows supporters to bid from their mobile phone from the time from the time an auction launches through the duration of the live event. Now, Bidding for Good's mobile technology adds excitement, and streamlines the entire fundraising event process. For more information on Bidding for Good's mobile technology, make sure that you click on biddingforgood.org.com. You can also find the link uh, over in the radio links today at tedhart.com. You'll also find the link for our sponsor, Bell Strike over in the radio links today. Now, before we head back with our page two expert, I do want to uh, point out to you the upcoming shows here on the Nonprofit Coach. Mark your calendar uh, for Valentine's Day, February 14th, next week, 12 noon Eastern. Uh, we will have Owen Charters here, who is an online fundraising expert, to give you all the very best advice on how to make 2012 your most successful online year. Now, as you know, once a month, we also partner with the organization Green Nonprofits, and we'll have the very special Green Show on Friday, February 17th at 1 p.m. Glenn Crofton is going to be here uh, to help you learn how to green your nonprofit budget. We come back with the Nonprofit Coach Show on February 21st with a very, very exciting new book, 101 Social Media Tactics for Nonprofits, and the authors of that book, Melody Mathos and Chad Norman, uh, will be here as my guests 
here on the Nonprofit Coach. And then very special, mark your calendar, because as you know, the Nonprofit Coach is every Tuesday at 12 noon Eastern, except this is leap year. So we're going to take the opportunity uh, to move the show from uh, February 28th to February 29th. Uh, since there won't be another February 29th for four years, we're going to have the special leap year show with a very important announcement of the Digital Leap uh, in honor of Leap Year, uh, a conference up in Toronto is going to be taking place this year, and we have a very big announcement, huge, huge, huge announcement uh, that's going to be coming to you on February 29th. So don't miss any of the shows, in particular the special Leap Year show. Let's uh, hurry right on back to Dr. Susan Raymond. CRDF Global must just be pinching themselves uh, with the uh, the appointment of Dr. Susan Raymond to its board of directors. Uh, Susan, tell us all about that, why you said yes, and how they got so lucky. Well, Civilian Research and Development Foundation, CRDF Global, um, was created by Congress through the National Science Foundation in the days of concern about nuclear proliferation and the Soviet Union sort of as so I was saying before, as the Soviet Union came apart and the countries became independent, and the question of of uh, how to uh, how to stabilize the nuclear uh, arsenal uh, became a critical policy. And of course, the, this was created because um, um, taking nuclear technology, taking research and development um, into um, uh, dual use or civilian use um, areas is very, very important, and really strengthening the civilian research and development capability in countries is a critical uh, part of how you graduate out, you know, scientific capability from a defense uh, sort of environment into a civilian application. Over the years, then, CRDF has, has expanded into Central Asia and programs in the Middle East. And um, I have, for many years, known, given my background, sort of in uh, in international development and foreign policy, known a number of people who are on the CRDF board. And they um, they asked me to join, and um, I was I was honored to be asked to join the board. And uh, it's a very, very dynamic board of scientific leaders, um, technology leaders, both from the people who have had public uh, government experience and people from the private sector. And I think these these issues of, obviously now, <laughs> given the situation we're in globally, these issues of the relationship between research and development and science and technology and the national security and um, economic growth um, are absolutely critical, and so I was very, very pleased to be part of it. Well, it's a, it's an honor uh, uh, that you are richly deserving with your uh, research background to uh, to serve on that board. So I did want to make note of that to uh, to all of our uh, our listeners uh, today. We do have an email question uh, from Megan. I think Megan uh, obviously was listening earlier when I I noted. Um, all of your special reports and white papers. And uh, Megan from St. Louis is asking, uh, which one's the most important to read first? <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Um, I'll get in trouble somewhere if I answer this question. Um, you know, I, what I would suggest, it depends It depends on what, you know, your particular area of, of um, expertise is. But we finished and, and just published late last year a study of state budget finance and the relationship between directions in state budget contraction and um, and the needs of the nonprofit sector. Oh, is this sector. The, uh, the white paper entitled The Public Finance Crisis, right. Can Philanthropy Shoulder the Burden? Right, exactly. And it is a, it's a unique data set of state budget uh, analysis that uh, is aligned against philanthropic analysis at the state level. And it really does, you know, we talk a lot about the, the economic um, dislocations at the federal level, but the dislocations at the state level are huge, and they're going to echo for many years through the ability of public finance to um, to power uh, nonprofit service provision. And so that 
for any almost any sector that has any relationship to public finance um, within the nonprofit community. That's a critical, critical piece of work. And and as uh, as you look at that, is that where where you think the biggest uh, burden? I mean, we we're talking about the call for entrepreneurship. We we're calling for the the reinvention of of nonprofits. Um, finances is always going to be an issue. Uh, can can the charitable sector uh, survive uh, this uh, downturn in public financing? You know, Ted, I think we're gonna two things are gonna happen. Well, three things. Um, number one. Nonprofits that prosper, and I want to make a distinction between prosper and exist. Nonprofits that prosper are going to have to innovate. Innovation is going to be the basis of prosperity in the nonprofit sector. Those who don't innovate won't necessarily go away, but they will not prosper going forward um, because the, 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 the rules have changed. The game has changed on the societal commons. I think the second issue, I think the second thing we're going to see is I, I, I can't imagine that there's not going to be a period over the next two to three years of mergers and acquisitions. We're already seeing it, um, whether it's back office collaboration to reduce overhead costs or, or, uh, or strategic partnerships or, you know, pure mer- mergers. I, I don't see how you can sustain 1.4 million and a rate of growth um, that we've seen over the past 20 years. In fact, the rate, the rate of growth of nonprofit formation continued to increase even as funding decreased in the, you know, in the financial crisis. So I, I don't think that's sustainable, and so I think we're going to see M&A. Um, and then the third thing we're going to see, aside from that, is a lot of organizations struggling and sort of bumping along the bottom because they – on the one hand, choose not to or can't innovate, um, or you know the, the the collaboration mergers acquisitions options aren't open to them. Um, I you know this this financial issue is just critical in the sector, and therefore it's critical on the societal commons. Well, what how 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 do we make sense of this explosion of the number of nonprofits? <laughs> I mean, it is absolutely astounding. I mean, one of the statistics that that I always uh, share with folks is that in in 2007, which was not that many years ago, uh, the IRS uh, created 37 new charities every minute. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting, Ted, because I I had a... Let me me uh, correct that. Every hour, I'm sorry. Every every hour hour that year is 37 new charities. That's huge. Well, a couple of things have to happen. I mean, first of all, we have to tighten, you know, the, we have to tighten the criteria. Um, but, but secondly, I mean, it, it, look, it's not a bad thing, you know, in, a, in, a, in an open society, in an open economy, in a freedom and independence, you, you ought to be able to address an issue the way you want to address an issue. I mean, I, I don't, I'm not a big person to say you should, you should not be allowed to do it. But I, I do think that. Um, the sector itself and phila- the, 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 uh, the disincentivizing needs to come not through a regulatory process. The disincentivizing needs to come through the philanthropic side of the table. That philanthropy. Well, we don't really have a mechanism uh, to do that because you know there isn't. There's probably no one in the nonprofit sector that knows anything uh, that would say you know first of all we need more nonprofits. I don't think anybody <laughs> would say that. But as soon as you start saying this one stays and this one goes, then someone's back is going to get up because there's someone who wanted that charity to exist. There's someone who's supporting that, even if it's not very efficient and even if there's 12 competing agencies doing the exact same thing. Absolutely, and therefore at the community level, foundations, community foundations, philanthropies um, need to encourage um, collaboration. They need to encourage um, cooperation and mergers, and and they can do that because they have the resources to do that. And in some communities, they are doing that. They are encouraging organizations to to um, to merge back offices. In Chicago, there, you know, the United Way in Chicago provided space inside uh, its building for twelve nonprofits of lots of different sizes, very, very, very big, well-known brands, and very small to come together to merge their back offices and reduce the amount of duplication and replication in things like 
insurance acquisition, human resources management, IT management. It was very difficult. It was extremely difficult. But I don't remember the exact numbers, but once they did that, they had they had a huge reduction in their overhead costs, and therefore they could flow more money to programs because they were cooperating in the back office. And that well, happened... The one of the concerns that I have is even beyond back office and, and those sorts of activities is oversight of these charities. When you have so many charities, mm-hmm. all of them mm-hmm. vying for boards of directors, mm-hmm. there's going to be varying degrees of quality, and most boards of directors don't know their role in oversight. Uh, you know, I think that's true. We we do. We're we're finding that obviously more and more as the pressure on nonprofits increases, that boards are as in some ways befuddled <laughs> about it all, you know, as the staff. And so we're doing a, a lot of training, a lot of board training, a lot of board strategy to try to get boards more able to uh, oversee and take fiduciary responsibilities seriously um, uh, on these nonprofits because a lot of what needs to happen in terms of cooperation and collaboration, et cetera, has to be, has to be supported at the board level. And that is that is so important, Susan. I'm just going to share a, a really quick uh, note here um, from Google uh, with our listeners. When we come back, we'll have just a couple of minutes, and I wanted you to uh, make sure that all of our listeners know how to reach you, and uh, you can wrap up the show today with uh, just a, a look into uh, into the future. Let's take a listen to this uh, important message from Google. Every day, millions of people are online many of whom want to help, volunteer, and donate to a good cause. Nonprofit organizations can use many Google tools to reach potential donors around the world and raise more money. And as an approved nonprofit, it doesn't cost a thing. It's all free. Google Grants helps you promote your website with free advertising on Google.com through the AdWords program. With Google AdWords, you create ads and choose words or phrases related to your nonprofit organization. When people search on Google using one of your phrases, your ad will appear next to the Google search results under the Sponsored Links section. AdWords allows you to target certain geographic areas, dates, and times of day for your ads to appear. YouTube for Nonprofits is another tool that can boost donations to your organization. The program offers a number of perks that get your message out there and drive viewers to take action and donate. You can list your organization on YouTube's nonprofit channel and add call-to-action overlays on your videos to drive viewers to donate. Need help analyzing your website traffic and marketing effectiveness? Google Analytics is a free tool that will give you rich insight and help you increase the number of people that visit and donate to your site. Google Analytics can be invaluable to many people in your organization, such as development directors, marketing staff, and your web team. There are many other tools that can help you reach more donors and raise funds, like Google Checkout, where you can process credit card donations with no transaction fee, Google Sites to create a free website, and Website Optimizer, where you can figure out the best landing pages to turn site visitors into donors. To get started, apply for Google for Nonprofits today. Susan, we're back and just uh, wrapping up the show here. Let's make sure that everybody knows how they can reach you. Um, they can reach me via email at sraymond at changingourworld.com um, or through the Changing Our World website. That's uh, that's terrific. Susan, we've just got two minutes uh, left here on the show. I can't believe how fast the time goes. It's been absolutely fascinating to uh, get a chance to uh, have a peek into your mind and the things that you work on. What's the future look like? Well, I think the future is very exciting. You know, quite frankly, I think one of the most exciting things about the future is that um, both Goldman Sachs and studies at Brookings have uh, have written extensively about the new two billion middle class that will be created over the next ten to fifteen years. That's two billion more people who will be in the middle class and able to engage in philanthropy and in in societal problem solving and and the, we are going to see a global explosion of um social engagement um over the next 10 years that I think is one of the most exciting things around well, it, it certainly is a, a very exciting future that we have in the nonprofit sector, if not just a little bit scary uh, for uh, for some uh, some of the folks. Um, how did leadership get their hands around this? 
you know, I think that I, I what I would like to see, Ted, is a lot more discussion of these kinds of topics at the professional conferences that are organized in this sector, both on the philanthropy side of the table and on the nonprofit side of the table. I think that we we spend a whole bunch of time in this sector talking about tactics, and I think we have to spend a whole bunch of more time talking higher up about strategies and goals against all of this major economic and demographic change that we're going to see happening over the next 10 years. Well, Dr. Susan Raymond, thank you for being our guest here on The Nonprofit Coach. I could not agree with you more, and I think that's exactly where boards of directors would like to have their discussion. Maybe you and I will work together on that. Thank you for being our guest here on The Nonprofit Coach. It's been a great privilege, Ted. Thank you. You've been listening to the Nonprofit Coach Radio Show with Ted Hart. Tell all your friends to check out our production schedule and download our iPod and iPad friendly podcast at tedhart.com. Thanks for listening to the Nonprofit Coach. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah. Oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, over prohibited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.